2: This is where we live i'm lucy nal cancer doesn't discriminate based on gender or race chances are you know someone affected by cancer but is enough being done by researchers to connect as many people as possible to advances in cancer treatment today where we live we look at the minority gap in clinical trials why aren't more minorities enrolling in trials and what are hospitals and drug companies doing to combat the problem. Coming up, we'll hear the story of an African-American woman who battled cancer. What advice does she have for others looking to participate in clinical trials long before it's considered a last option? And we'll dig into why there's mistrust in the black community when it comes to clinical trials. We'll hear from an author who has studied cases of medical experimentation on African-Americans. The most well-known example is a Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Now, have you struggled to find clinical trials for yourself or your loved one? Have you had doubts about enrolling? We want to hear from you today. 860 275 You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, joining us uh, for the hour in studio is Sujata Srinivasan. Her name's probably familiar to WMPR listeners. Sujata has contributed to business stories heard on our air. Welcome back to the, the radio station here, Sujata. Thank you,
3: Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here on your show today.
2: Now, um, we're, you're here today as an independent or freelance reporter for the Connecticut Health investigative team, and you were the uh, author of a C-HIT story, Clinical Trials in Need of Diversity. So we're happy that you're able to join us today. And joining us on the phone is someone you interviewed for the story, Dr. Salvatore Predi, Director of Clinical Trials at Stanford Hospital's Bennett Cancer Center. Dr. Predi, welcome
1: to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to participate.
2: Uh, you know, to begin, let's talk a little bit about clinical trials, why they're important, and how they work exactly, Dr. DelPretti.
1: You know, clinical trials are the mainstay of the future of um, patients who develop cancer as well as all other types of diseases. Um, without them, we would still be in the dark ages in oncology uh, where we used drugs that didn't work, made people sick, Um, and and patients did die from some of these early uh, drugs. Uh, Today, thanks to clinical trials, we have learned more about the immune system. We have learned more about cancer cells and the targets that they have on their backs, and we have developed drugs that allow us to strike those targets directly. Um, Although there are still toxicities, the studies haven't eliminated all the toxicities of these new drugs. They're different. And for the most part, much safer than some of the older uh, chemotherapeutic agents that we used in the past. Trials are three different phases phase one, two, and three. Phase one is when patients are offered the trial. They've already been through standard uh, care type agents. They've already had maybe a phase three trial, uh, and they have no other real choices uh, other than supportive care. It's the first time drugs are being used in patients in humans um, in phase one trials. Phase two trials generally uh, the drug has been found safe in phase one and it's moved ahead to a specific disease or diseases. Um, In phase two you have smaller numbers of patients than you do in phase three and you're looking for additional uh, heads up on toxicities but at the same time looking for efficacy. Does the drug work? In phase three, you generally take that new drug that showed some efficacy and safety in humans and you move it into a randomized trial uh, where it is compared to a standard drug or more likely today, standard drugs plus the new drug versus standard drug plus placebo. Um, And that's where we see a lot of the placebo-controlled trials, but even in those, patients are getting standard drugs at the very least and they know they're getting at least a standard drug. So those are the three phases of, of uh, the most important phases of clinical mm-hmm. trials.
2: Now, Dr. Uh, Del Delpreti, uh, we know that there are clinical trials for lots of different drugs uh, to treat many different diseases. Uh, we're focusing on cancer for the first part of the show because uh, you work at the Stanford Hospital's Bennett Cancer Center. Uh, you mentioned uh, immunotherapy. And when we think about clinical trials, um, it, when we think about cancer, you know, radiation, chemotherapy, but when we think about clinical trials, these are really where the advances in cancer treatment happen.
1: That's correct. And
2: That's with very I mean,
1: correct, and that, that could be also different radiation therapy techniques, different surgical techniques. But I think you are talking mostly today about you know chemo, bio, um, immunotherapy type trials. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, Sujatha is in studio with us. You reported on U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, or FDA data, looking at clinical trials
3: and participants. What did you find? Um, It's concerning that minorities are not adequately represented in clinical trials for FDA drugs. And you know, first of all, it's a fairness issue. We want everyone to have access to new therapies. But beyond that, um, we find that people respond differently, Uh, they metabolize drugs differently based on their race, their ethnicity, their gender, and even age. I mean, take for example, a seemingly simple drug uh, called Jublia. It's used to treat toenail fungus. But that drug was found to be more efficient in women than men and work better in Asians uh, compared to Caucasians and African-Americans. And this is why we need to have everyone be a part of clinical trials, because obviously we want pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs that work at their optimum for everybody. But clearly that's not the case right now. For 2016, according to the FDA data, just 7% of trial participants were African-Americans. And there is a disconnect between that and the disease profile. We know, according to data, there's plenty of data out there to show that African-Americans and other minority groups are at higher risks for certain types of diseases, especially cancer. Um, For instance, um, there is this drug, um, um, several drugs, but an example would be jubilea. And it's a a detection for a prostate cancer reoccurrence. And um, only about... Four percent of trial participants for that drug were African-Americans, but African-American men have the highest uh, incidence of prostate cancer, and they're also more than twice as likely to die from the disease compared to Caucasians Mm -hmm. and other groups. So um, there is a disconnect uh, in terms of the disease profile and in the population profile of clinical trials.
2: Now, Dr. DelPretti, you, you direct the clinical trials at Stanford Hospital's uh, Cancer Center. Um, do you have a hard time recruiting a divi- diverse number of patients?
1: To tell you the truth, it's difficult for us in our practice um, to give you a specific answer to that because we don't keep track of that data. Uh, as far as we are concerned, all seven of the physicians here, our vested interest is in moving the science forward and in offering all of our patients trials. So, the practice really is colorblind mm. towards trials, language blind towards trials. We don't keep track of who goes on, who doesn't. Every patient here has access to trials. The problem is, I may. Uh, it's 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 multiple uh, uh, problems. It's multifaceted. Number one there are some cultural biases when people come in, there are certain patients from certain parts of the world and they say it's a woman sitting in front of me and the husband makes all the decisions for that patient. And, you know, they, it's difficult for someone else to make a decision. It's frankly unethical uh, for me to get consent driven by a third party, namely a husband. Uh, So that, is one barrier uh, a second barrier is language uh, some people many people frankly don't speak English if they're Hispanic we can you know we generally have consent forms but there are so many languages that the trials don't have consents for all of them and to get a consent after the fact you can't just can't do that no one wants to wait a month for the drug company or the ECOG uh, cooperative group people to put together a trial or the Farber because we're involved with their research program to put together a trial consent form, which can take a month because it has to go through institutional review boards. So that's a barrier to entry to trials. And I entirely agree with the other speaker on the applicability of results from clinical trials being a problem because they're randomized. It takes out some bias, but it doesn't take out cultural bias. In particular, there are some cancer drugs that we have major toxicities with in Caucasians and actually people in the Western Hemisphere, whereas in the Eastern Hemisphere of the world, they don't see that toxicity. So clinical trial results are not always generalizable to the the population that we see and that's a problem so we all want improved access improved participation really more than access I think they have access they just don't have participation in trials across the gamut of race creed religion part of the world because that would only help us I want to make clear that it is our vested interest to have more and more patients on trials because the goal is to offer trials to people, giving them access to state-of-the-art medicine, and to move the science forward.
2: Now, Dr. DelPretti, you mentioned uh, the importance of of having consent forms in multiple languages. That can be hard to do. Um, It can slow down uh, research. But have you had cases where a patient's sitting in front of you um, and they may be able to participate based on the fact that they may not not have chronic diseases that would um, keep them out of participating, but they still haven't made that decision? Does that frustrate
1: you? It frust- the frustration with a patient because they haven't made a decision to go on a trial? No. Mm-hmm. I think each patient has to make that decision for himself or herself. So I don't get frustrated by their indecision. Um, I see it as you know a challenge. I think you know the way I handle um, every single patient I see is to try to explain to them for example with a phase three trial that, you know, we don't know what the best treatment is for you. Um, We do know what standard drugs are, and you have access to a trial where we can treat you with standard drugs or standard drugs plus a new agent, which does A, B, and C. We don't know if it's going to be better, but it might be. It might be worse. I mean, they need to be told, you know, fairly that we don't know what the results are. But in a Phase three trial, I can tell them, That it's already been through phase one and phase two. It's relatively safe and it had activity. What we're trying to find out in this phase three trial is whether or not the drug adds to the standard of care. Mm. If they say no, we just move on. You cannot get frustrated. These people have cancer. Mm. To get frustrated with someone who has cancer, I think you should find yourself a different, Mm. uh, you know, job somewhere.
2: But I, But what I mean, Dr. Delpredi, is when frustration being if someone, if you know someone's a good candidate and this could help extend their life, you know, as a doctor, you know, well, how you maneuver that,
1: that. I'm sorry, that you can't make that statement mm-hmm. for clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Um, you can make that statement that it may extend your life, mm-hmm. that you said, I know that it may extend your life. I don't know that on a mm-hmm. clinical trial. No mm-hmm. one knows that. Mm-hmm. Because clinical trials are testing the efficacy of the drugs. Mm-hmm. So this is where, assume yeah. that it's going to extend, that may be my bias, mm. it frequently is, but I can't let that bias make me coerce patients to go on to trials. That's just inappropriate. Mm-hmm.
2: So um, this is where we live. Today, we're talking about clinical trials and a lack of diverse participants uh, that are enrolling in uh, clinical trials. On the phone with us, Dr. Salvatore DelPretti. He's the director of clinical trials at Stanford Hospital's Bennett Cancer Center. In studio with us, Sujata Srinivas, an independent reporter for the Connecticut Health investigative team, author of the C-HIT story, Clinical Trials in Need of Diversity. I wanted to turn back to you, Sujata. In terms in terms of uh, patients, fu- whether they um, are a cancer patient or they're facing another disease or they're looking for
3: um, advances in treatment, where do patients go to get that information? Well, the first point is the doctor. Um, I have an extraordinary story of a remarkable woman that I interviewed for the CHIT, uh, C-Hit feature. Um, Edith Baker was 81 years old, um, diagnosed with stage 4 advanced bladder cancer, and she had exhausted all options, conventional uh, treatment, radiation and chemotherapy stopped working for her. And she was told, you know, she didn't have too much time left. And her doctor at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center right here across Mm -hmm. the road had the foresight to um, refer Edith, who happens to be African-American, to a a clinical trial at Yukon Health. And she was um, given um, an extraordinary drug called Mm Keytruda, an immunotherapy drug, which is credited with uh, successfully treating President Jimmy Carter's melanoma. And I spoke to Edith's uh, doctor, I spoke to Edith, of course, and Edith's doctor, and she's doing very well considering her age and the nature of her disease. She's up and going. She sounds cheerful. Of course she has side effects. I mean, this is stage four bladder cancer. But the alternative would have been heartbreaking. Mm. So the, the first point for a patient is doctor. And for that to happen, there has to be a trust between the patient and the doctor. And Harriet's going to be talking um, later in the segment about the challenges in in trust. There's been a weakening of trust between minority communities and the medical community because of the history. Um, Other factors um, that impede participation rates is asymmetric information. The FDA is dealing with that. Mm -hmm. So the FDA was authorized by Congress to fix this problem. And in 2014, they came up with a couple of solutions, one of which was to try and figure out how do we inform patients of clinical trials and how do we get them to the right trial? And as a um, in Connecticut, there's a, a very strong ecosystem that's being developed to match patients with trials. And at UConn Health, they are rolling out an electronic medical record system that's going to go live next year where doctors will have access to um all patients in their system with any provider who might be a right candidate for trial. So they will contact those patients to see, they'll contact all patients to see, hey, this is what we have going on. Would you be interested? So that's one way of dealing with the asymmetric information Mm -hmm. problem. Um, Pharma companies do play a role
2: And we'll uh, learn more about that later in the show. But I wanted to turn back to Dr. DelPretti before we had to break. Did you want to uh, react to at all what Sajatha was saying about um, the issue of trust in certain communities and how, as medical professionals, um, how you can work with patients to um, regain some of that trust?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a good point. Um, I think that patients, when they're sitting in front of um, an oncologist, Need to feel that that oncologist has uh, you know their best interest in mind, and I think you have to really work at that uh, to gain their trust and the trust of the families. I mean, I like families to be there when I talk to patients and try to get a team uh, going um, to fight uh, the malignancy. Um, I think that that's one of the ways we can gain trust is by talking to people, not rushing through them. Uh, spending the time, it takes an enormous amount of time to get people on onto, onto trials or to even inform them of standard drugs and if you you really have to be willing to spend that time and that helps gain trust, they see that you 're unselfish with that time. I think they feel more uh, willing to, to to work with you. I want to add one point about uh, trials and and aiming to get people on them um, it, There are today targeting type drugs and immunotherapy drugs, which if you send patients' tissue off for uh, genomic testing, so-called next generation genomic testing, some of the uh, programs that do those tests, there's one in Boston, for example, um, they will actually tell you what the targets are and what studies are being done worldwide and where they're being done. And our institution actually tr- goes o- over that data with each of our patients. And if I had this happen you know, late yesterday, a patient is eligible for a trial being done in Boston. Um, and I spoke to him. He happens to be African-American. And that's a study that he is going to be considering uh, after his current uh, regimen um, stops working. So that is a way to show people that, hey, you have a target. This is the place that's being done. Let's get you over there to see if you're eligible and be positive about it. Um, And I think we also want to give these patients hope. It's not false hope, as in the Keytruda story or Pembrolizumab, which is the chemical name for that drug. Um, Those are the things we're doing today. We're finding a lot of Keytrudas. We're finding a lot of targets. And only with the clinical trials will we you know, bring the uh, end result that is better patient care, longer survival with less toxicity to fruition.
2: We're Dr. Salvatore Del Preti, again, Director of Clinical Trials at Stanford Hospital's Bennett Cancer Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me
2: on. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Naltithanchel. Today we're looking at the problem of minority participation in clinical trials. In studio with us is reporter Sujatra Srinivasan. Coming up, we look back at our nation's history of medical experimentation on people, both black and white. Author and medical ethicist Harriet Washington will join us and we'll take your questions too. What's been your experience seeking treatment? If you're a minority, has it been hard to get information on clinical trials? And what are the reasons you either accepted or declined participating? Join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the lack of diversity in clinical trials. According to FDA data, it's mostly white patients who enroll in this research. Now, freelance reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or C-HIT, Sujata Srinivasan, is here. She looked into the issue to find out why African Americans and other minorities aren't participating at the same rates. Now, is part of the issue due to a lack of trust by African Americans in the medical and research communities? Now, there's certainly a history of medical experimentation on blacks in the U.S., also Native Americans and immigrants. Now the most widely known case is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment where black men thought they were being treated for the disease. Instead, doctors uh, allowed the disease to progress just so they could study the outcome. How has this case and others impacted communities of color? What lessons have been learned? How are issues of informed consent navigated today? To tell us more, we're joined now by phone Harriet Washington. She's a medical ethicist. She's the author of several books including Uh, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. Harriet, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me here.
2: Um, In your book, you outline how the U.S. has a disturbing history of uh, medical experimentation on blacks in this country. Let's talk about a few examples. I mentioned Tuskegee, but you also talk about uh, the story of a civil rights activist, Fannie Lou Hamer. Tell us about her.
4: Well, Tuskegee was actually a very atypical research study. But in terms of Fannie Lou Hamer, we're talking about something that was quite typical, and that was the uh, unconscionable and involuntary sterilization of African-American women, not only throughout the South, but also in urban eastern centers like Boston and New York City and also on the West Coast in large cities near San Francisco and Los Angeles. Black women were routinely sterilized without their permission, and they were actively um, deceived. In fact, medical records were falsified, with black women being told they were um, getting gallbladder removal, for example, or a necessary appendectomy. And instead, while they were under anesthesia, the um, physician, um, usually an ob gyn but, but not always, the physician would remove their uterus, you know, an involuntary hysterectomy, and then never tell her that. Fannie Lou Hamer discovered this had been done to her, only when she heard gossip on the plantation yes she worked on a plantation in nineteen sixty-one on the plantation where she worked mm. um, there had been a lot of gossip because as it so happens the owner's wife was a cousin of the physician who had taken out her uterus so many people learned about it until she heard about it through gossip and this was far from atypical it was done for very young women and there were actually policies in hospitals like boston and new york city uh, policies where obgine residents were told any black woman who comes in here who's already had one or two children remove her uterus we don't want quote unquote these people to be breeding. so prejudicial prejud- so you know the problem is that this was done um without their permission mm. and there i'm um, in my book has 15 chapters only one of them deals with tuskegee mm. most of these studies were far more invasive and far more abusive and actually bloodier than the Tuskegee study.
2: Uh, Sujata Srinivasan is in the studio with us. She's a freelance reporter. Sujata?
3: And Oprah Winfrey is starring in uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks Mm. on HBO, and that is a heartbreaking story, too, the exploitation of uh, a young mother um, whose cells were taken. She was dying of cervical cancer, and her cells were taken without consent. And these are extraordinary cells. they, They just didn't die. The cancer just kept growing and growing and growing. And those HeLa cells were the basis of a lot of cutting-edge research today. And this was done without her consent. So there is a long history of mistrust, understandably so, given the exploitation of minority communities. But I do want to add that there is no doubting the sincerity of doctors today in Connecticut and nationally in trying to get everyone on clinical trials. I spoke to dozens of doctors Mm -hmm. for the CHIT story, One of them is Dr. Uh, Kristen Zarfos, a breast surgeon at the Hospital of uh, Central Connecticut. And she was having trouble recruiting uh, minority women, African-American women. And that cohort is young women, particularly high risk for aggressive forms of cancer, triple negative breast cancers. And she heartbreakingly told me that these women are invisible until they show up with advanced cancer. So obviously, the way to, to get to it is to diagnose early on. And she uh, was funded to do an ultrasound study, and she was struggling to recruit patients. Part of it was this mistrust. She wanted to recruit 100 patients in five years, but she ended up getting 135 women in the first year, thanks to a community organization in New Haven called Sister's Journey. It's an African-American support group for women with breast cancer. And uh, Dawn White Bracy, the president, I, I spoke to her about this initiative, and she took Dr. Zarfo's along to diaper depots, where she could speak with young mothers, to hair salons. Um, And the ecosystem is wider than that. Mayor Tony Hopp was there talking to people, you know, about saying, hey, this is clinical study that might benefit you. And your hairdressers, and I spoke to some of the the members of Sister's Journey, and they say, we hear from our mayor. We hear from our hairdresser that, you know, we've been going to for years. And so, and and then the doctor shows up. So this is how we build trust. And advance. So, so Jotha,
2: you're talking about these outreach efforts in communities today, but if we wanted to turn back to um, our guest, Harriet Washington, again, a medical ethicist. Um, we just talked about a, a few cases where, uh, you know, very troubling history in the United States with a uh, forced sterilization uh, not uh, informing patients that they weren't getting treated for syphilis, as in Tuskegee. But can we talk about um, some other examples and then how you see, see that playing out in in communities of color today? This this uh, Uh, this uh, feeling of of not getting the enough information to make that informed decision.
4: Certainly we can talk about that and as I pointed out before Tuskegee was quite atypical. Mm -hmm. I wrote about Henrietta Lacks and HeLa cells back in the 1990s when I wrote a medical ethics uh, column for Emerge magazine and one of the really interesting things is um, not only the non-consensual nature but the fact that when I discuss um, history of um, medical research in African-American community. We're not t- always talking about 300, 400 years ago. A great deal happened 200 years ago. A great deal is happening today. A lot of the history in my book is fairly recent. The later chapters deal with many instances within the recent memory of people reading the book. For example, um, distribution of a Norplant, you know, a physician-mediated contraceptive that was implanted in women's arms, Well, it was done as part of a huge research study, and yet women were not made privy to that. They didn't realize that. Teenage girls in Baltimore schools were recruited, and the um, intent might have been a laudable one, might be defensible. You could say it was a good intent, perhaps. Uh, They wanted to see whether or not the drug was effective and safe in these girls, but that does not excuse failing to tell these girls and their parents That this was being done and that they were part of a research study. Most troubling to me is something that I actually discussed in a recent article I wrote for the Journal of Law, Medicine and Ethics, and that is that many people in this country don't don't realize that um, very recently, again in 2006, the study ended in 2006, we have had studies um, that are legal that do not entail informed consent. People are never told they're enrolled in the study. They are um, 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 enrolled in the study while they are unconscious, given a therapeutic modality. In this case, it was an artificial blood substitute given to people who were unconscious, who were trauma victims, and um, without their permission, which is unfortunately perfectly legal due to a law that was passed in 1996. So it's important to realize we're not always talking about ancient history. We're talking about very flagrant abuses during the time. And a lot of the examples that have been brought up by the doctors today are examples where, of course, uh, the um, research is therapeutic. The intent is to help the patient, and the hope is to help the patient. But that raises another problem. Uh, A very good ethicist named Jay Katz in 1995 raised the um, point that there's something called the therapeutic illusion, which encourages research subjects to think of themselves as patients. It's important to realize that they're not. If you're a research subject, the goal is to find a modality that, You know, we hope it will help you, but the goal is to help the people who will benefit later on when the drug is on the market. So the individual research subject is not the focus of the research, which is very different from when you're a patient and you can trust your physician to have only your own best interests in mind. Uh, This distinction is important, and people need to know, you know, that they are a, a research subject rather than a patient. When you don't make the clear distinctions between the two, Um, Things like waiving informed consent as they did with artificial blood is a a big problem because you've got some human subjects being recruited to serve the ends of other subjects. Um, I also want to point out something really important is that one of the premises, a very common premise, is that African Americans, you know, we keep hearing the term minority, but we're talking about African Americans, ethnic minorities. African Americans are... um, Fear medical research, but it's important to look at this in context. White Americans also increasingly fear medical research. There have been a lot of highly publicized abuses and problems that have made people alarmed. But the problem is not, as it's been you know, cast, a problem of African Americans' reactions to medical research and their fear. The problem is a healthcare system that has proved, proven untrustworthy too often. It is logical not to trust a system that has repeatedly shown itself to be untrustworthy and lacking transparency. So to focus on African-American fears without focusing on the failings of the system is a big problem. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a great deal operating here that tends not to enter these discussions, such as the fact that um, therapeutic studies meant to help people, we hope will help the people who are recruited into the study. But it's important to understand that the studies have a benefit for the research and for the institution as well there's nothing wrong with that the fact that it will help the researcher in his or her career the fact that it will benefit the institution sometimes by allowing it to do better studies sometimes by accruing funds and money there's nothing wrong with that what is wrong is there not being a transparency about that an openness about the fact that this is a mutual relationship you know, casting it as a beneficent relationship where um, only the patient is being served is simply not true. Many people sense that. They may not know the details. And that is certainly not going to do anything to
5: increase trust.
2: This is where we live today. We're talking about a lack of minority participation in clinical trials, and we're looking at uh, many reasons why. One factor that we hear from communities, including our reporter Sujata Srinivasan when she was reporting on this, is um, there is uh, not necessarily fear, as Harriet Washington has said, um, also is not just something that you can point to, but also just not having the right information. And when we look back at the history in the United States, sometimes the history of medical experimentation does influence people's minds about, is this something that I can trust? Sujata, you wanted to add to what Harriet was
3: saying? She raises some very strong and very valid points. Informed consent is essential. I mean, it's unethical, to put it mildly, not to have it. And everybody who's participating in a clinical trial should know that they may not get a drug. They may get a placebo. And their doctors may not know what drug they are getting. So in a sense, everybody is in a way, shape, or form um, a guinea pig to advance science. But um, sometimes the outcome can be extraordinary, like in Edith's case, and sometimes it might not. And there are many examples for that. I wonder whether Harriet could throw some light on how we can help build trust today. You know, we have community healthcare workers and the return on investment. We have many models to show that it's working. They go and work with uh, communities where the kids are at high risk for asthma, they work with uh, patients with opioid use disorder, they've been able to bring down emergency room visits, Um, they've been able to work with um, Latinos with diabetes, for example, and help control some of those blood sugar numbers. So um, what do you think? Would Would it help to have community health workers go down a sort of a bill of rights checklist with potential candidates for clinical trials saying, hey, these are your rights these are the questions you should be asking, and would that help?
4: Documents like a Bill of Rights are only useful insofar as they're followed. I'm thinking of a case in Raleigh, North Carolina, where this blood substitute that I mentioned earlier was being tested on people without their consent in largely minority populations, and a lawyer managed to stop it because she found that the study was violating the state's patient's Bill of Rights. However, the study then received a waiver that allowed it to proceed. You know, the key, I think, is not um, these well-intended and probably very, very useful initiatives. Um, I'm not saying they're not helpful. They certainly are helpful for some groups of people. But it's a bit like putting your finger in the dike. You know, you've got um, a huge flood and you're trying to stem the tide with a stopgap measure, what we need is an overhaul of the system, which actually would not be that difficult and expensive. We have a system that is simply not, um, does not function terribly Mm -hmm. well, and there are things that need to be done. For example, um, the, the Institutional Review Board that has got to approve of every medical study done in this country. Mm-hmm. They are um, located in hospitals, in other institutions. There are even some private boards which have spotty records. But these boards have to okay research, and they're supposed to be like the last line of defense for protecting the rights and the dignity of subjects who enroll, as well as making sure, of course, the trial is you know scientifically logical and legal. However, the composition of these boards is such that you have... Um, a board full of researchers, and the law only mandates that one person representative of the community should be there, one person outside of the institution. And that person is usually someone who is tangentially tied to the institution, like a hospital chaplain. And I have proposed in my book that what we need is something that um, represents researchers and has an equal number of people who represent the people who will actually be asked to enroll in the study. So if you have 15 researchers on the board, you also need to have 15 people from the community from which you'll uh, recruit subjects. That's only logical, and it would not be terribly expensive. Um, We also have a system set up whereby these boards are supposed to be monitored. Research said are supposed to be monitored by the federal government. It doesn't happen because we haven't allocated enough funds. So we need more sweeping measures that would actually, in many cases, simply um, follow existing laws and would not be terribly expensive. I think that they, these are going to be much more efficient ways of addressing the inequities and abuses than um, the smaller methods, which I'm sure will be very helpful, but are not going to address mm-hmm. the larger nationwide problem.
2: You're hearing Harriet Washington, author a medical ethicist, uh, written several books, including Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from colonial times to the present. Harriet, we want to take a call from a listener now. Kim's calling from West Hartford, I believe. Kim, you're on the show.
5: Great, thank you very much. I just want to say I fully agree with Ms. Washington's assessment. I worked in cultural competence um, support in a healthcare system, a hospital system in Western Mass, and I would say that this problem really um, begins at birth for many young people of color who are raised up in a healthcare system with physicians that are culturally incompetent. That mistreat them intentionally and unintentionally, just based on you know responding to and reacting to their own bias. So that by the time a, a person who's raised in that system, raised with a certain level of uncare or miscare or unculturally competent care, um, then gets to the point where someone is asking them to do something that they believe is risky, if they even continue to rely on the healthcare system at that point, um, that building—that barrier that um, the earlier physician spoke about—is almost insurmountable. Um, so this really begins with an overall, um, overarching improvement of the cultural competence in the way physicians are caring for patients of color from birth to death.
2: Now, uh, Kim, thank you for your comment. I just wanted to read a tweet we just got from someone who writes, Count me out. Given the history and current political climate, I don't trust any of it. And that that does seem to be the sentiment these days. People don't trust the information in front of them um, for good reason and bad. Harriet Washington, before we head to break, what is your advice to people to get that information that makes them um, be able to ha- make an informed decision
4: I don't think I can reiterate enough that we're talking about half the solution. Mm -hmm. Um, Revising people's attitudes is one half the solution. The other half the solution is revising the system, getting rid of the inequities and the biases in the system. Frankly, if we fix the system and remove its racism and bias and exploitation, then the problem will solve itself. People will be able to trust it. In the interim, I think... For an individual patient, the thing to do, the most important thing to do, is have a medical um, person whom you can trust. Find a doctor you can trust. I talk about this in Medical Apartheid. I give detailed examples of things people can do. Find a doctor who you can trust and who is also uh, compatible with your philosophies. If you're into, for example, alternative medicine, find a doctor who's comfortable with that. That doctor, that ally is your most important person. And then if you have a family member who's got some training, you know, a nurse, a medical student, recruit them in your health care journey. But the one thing we c- you cannot afford to do is avoid the system. Mm. Avoiding the system, separating ourselves from the bounty of the health care system, is a death sentence. We can look at the numbers and see it's not working for African Americans. We have to be involved in the system. But to do so safely, you need advocates whom you can trust.
2: I want to thank medical ethicist and author Harriet Washington. Again, she's the author of several books, including Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. Uh, Harriet, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it.
4: And my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Now, Sujata Srinivasan is here, a reporter for C-HIT in studio with us as we talk about how medical professionals and researchers can improve minority participation in clinical trials. After the break, one woman's story of battling cancer and how she got the information she needed to connect with those advances in cancer treatment. What's been your experience learning about clinical trials? We want to hear from you 860 275 This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the tick population in Connecticut's on the rise. So is the threat of Lyme disease and new tick-borne diseases like the Powassan virus. On the next Where We Live, we'll hear the latest from medical professionals and policy makers about the need for new funding and research to battle the tick problem. Are you worried about how to protect yourself and your family? Join the conversation. That's tomorrow. Now joining our conversation now is a Hartford resident who decided to participate in a clinical trial, despite her family's initial concerns. We wanted to hear the story of Denise Patterson again, who lives in Hartford. Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so tell me a little bit about your your story. Uh, I understand that you enrolled in a clinical uh, trial for breast cancer. How did you reach that decision?
0: Okay, so I was diagnosed at forty-five. Uh, so in two thousand and fifteen. Uh, just after having a mammogram uh, in March and in April because uh, uh, the breast was hurting, but I had my annual one and then I went back. Then I found a lump uh, in September. So, you know, it did travel pretty quickly. It was an aggressive one. So I found it in September of 2015. Um, And I journeyed through eight hits of chemo and then got ready for surgery Uh, in last year uh, in February, which set me back a little bit because I developed a toxic reaction in the operating room uh, and developed Steven Johnson syndrome. No one's ever heard of it. Only one out of maybe 2,000 people ever have it. And uh, that sent me to Bridgeport burn unit for seven days uh, to recover from that. And then after that, uh, I was able to do 28 days of radiation But uh, I attended a Weekend of Hope in Vermont, and during that weekend, there's conferences and different things that you learn, because I want to learn more about the um, breast cancer the disease. Most people just hear about breast cancer, and they don't know anything else. So how do I prepare myself to live a life of, of a breast cancer survivor? So I went to that weekend, me and another friend who was also a breast cancer survivor, And uh, one thing that stuck out in my mind at one of the seminars, it says, get yourself involved in clinical trials. Um, And I had never really even thought about that. I've heard of it very slightly. Um, So when I got back to see my oncologist, she did mention something that I might qualify for a clinical trial. She had mentioned that on two occasions. Um, And I was interested. I told her, yes, I would like to do it, uh, given the fact that how how does medicine get better? Uh, the tamoxifen that we're that I'm currently on, someone had to take it, mm. and so um, I wanted to be a part of history as far as um, you know improving science. You know, because when most people get that that uh, conversation, you have cancer. You know, the first thing that comes is death, and um, that you think in your mind as being a survivor, fear. You want to live. I have two children. My daughter is 16, and my son is 30, and um I want to I live. I want to see my daughter graduate. The first thing she said to me when I told her was, are you going to die? And I said, no, they have a plan. God has a first plan, but then they have medicine. This is not an uncommon thing. So getting involved in a clinical trial was something that I wanted to do. Um, and when I told my family, they were really... Not so happy. Well, well, well tell us people. why.
2: Tell us some, um, some of the reaction from some of your well, family Well, my numbers. son
0: is very holistic, and so he just figured a holistic approach would just, you know, you know, you just got to be holistic, Mom, and that's, you know, how it's got to be. And, and then my sister also feared, too, and just, you know, was like, just believe. I do believe that I it will never come back. I, I'm just going to keep the faith in that and but I also wanted to be a part of science and when I talked to my mom she said back in the days when she had a a cyst in her breast they put a little a piece of metal in there as a marker and uh, they said this is a new thing that we're trying and she said yes I'll agree and today they're using still using that same marker because when I did the biopsy they used a marker so I said it didn't kill my mom she's Mm -hmm. still here and so you know, like you said, you may not get the, you may get the placebo. You don't know. And then sometimes clinical trials are just um, checking your blood levels. It's not a pill. So there's different types. And if you educate yourself on different types and ask questions, I feel like you can make an educated guess on whether or not you're going to do it.
2: Now, you mentioned that you heard about these clinical trials when you went to this conference in Vermont, mm-hmm. went back to your oncologist. Mm-hmm. Um, she helped you enroll. Do you feel like you should have gotten that information sooner um, in your journey to, to battle cancer and become a survivor? Um, I I can't say yes,
0: because it's a lot of information. When you go to that doctor, you're with a friend, and your main focus is, how do I get through these treatments you know what is chemo really like? You see it on TV. I've never gone with anyone to to chemo, so I didn't know what I was up against. So, you know, getting that information would have helped me. Maybe not because mine was curable. They said, you know, this is the treatment. We this is the regimen. This is so knowing that. I don't think adding any more to that conversation would have helped me mentally because the fear factor was there. You get frightened and sometimes you can't take on more information at that time. You have to let it digest and having someone else in the room with me, a family member, a friend. I had a friend, Sherry Willingham, who had also was a breast cancer survivor. And I know that she was there and she, she's journeyed through. She had a really aggressive one. Matter of fact, they told her to get her arrangements together and she's still here. She's five years. And so I had to have that faith to keep me going. So I don't know that adding something else, because I think if they said, well, we could try a clinical trial, to me that would have said, okay, I have something that may not be curable. So having that conversation may not have helped me then.
2: Sujatha, you reported on uh, Denise's story uh, again for C-HIT. And you mentioned earlier a little bit, we've just got a couple more minutes about um, the sister's journey. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about how that program is helping other women. Maybe Denise, you can talk about that. Yes, yeah, Sister Journey
0: Dorn, she's a uh, president of Sister Journey out of New Haven. And I got involved with Her, um, through Maggie Gardner of Gardner's House, I heard about it and I attended one of their gatherings for African-American women. Uh, Actually, her mom uh, was a breast cancer. She journeyed through breast cancer and she lost her battle. But she wanted to keep this group going. And they meet at a church in New Haven and they have different functions. And it's always good to... Uh, involve yourself and and make friends with people that have journeyed through what you're going through because you may have spouses and friends that you can talk to but they have if they haven't been on the journey they really can't understand mentally and physically what you're going through and so sister journey is able to reach so many people actually she connected us me with it with the writer um to tell my story and she asked me you know would you want to tell your... Of course I want to tell my story because how do you get better with things? How do you inform others by telling your story? I'm not ashamed to say I am a breast cancer survivor. And to check your breast, save yourself early detection. I tell my story all the time. I could be in the grocery store and I stop people and tell them because you have to know to check your breasts. A lot of people, we wait until the annual mammogram. And they, and they told me if you had waited... It would not have been good for you. I had an aggressive grade three. So, Sister Journey is keeping the fight alive because of African American people. We are very, it's very taboo to tell your story and, and to tell. Um, most people keep their things secret, like you'll never know. They'll say, Oh, nothing's wrong. But to me, I need to I want to tell you because I want to save you because you could be you're a mom you're a wife you're a daughter you, you have your own story and if I could tell one person to go to get their breast checked and save themselves and also do not be frightened of clinical trials mm-hmm. then that's the most important thing well, to, to do and I also reached out I've met some wonderful ladies at the conference that's living with metastatic breast cancer and I reached out to the, to them and they said of course try. That was the first thing they said, mm-hmm. of course.
2: Well, Denise, we're so happy to hear that you're a survivor, and we're happy that you shared your story with us today. Mm-hmm. That's Denise Patterson. She lives in Hartford. And I want to also thank Sujata Srinivasan, an independent freelance reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, author of the c story, Clinical Trials in Need of Diversity. We'll be tweeting out the link uh, at, our, at where we live. Sujata, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Lucy. A pleasure. Today's show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Tim Cohen. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening.